is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For this episode, I chat with John Braglio, and we cover a little bit of everything from risk tolerance to Michael Papp to post-pandemic theater, taste, communication, and of course, his book, I Want to Be a Producer, and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this part one with John Braglio. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on Zoom is John Braglio. John, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I want to talk about so much of your life path and lessons learned. And before this, we were just talking about the future of Broadway, which we will discuss here in the conversation. Before I get to that, I just want to take it back to the beginning of time for you. What were your entertainment dreams growing up? Well, if you want to go really far back, it was to be directly into the business. I wanted to be um, a performer and then later on more director. Uh, I studied music piano for about 10 years. I uh, decided not to pursue that professionally and went to Yale undergraduate and, and um, uh, did a lot of theater work there. Uh, I loved acting, but I didn't really think in the end that was professionally something I could do. And I really wanted to be a director. Long story short, um, Vietnam came. I wasn't sure what I could do. I uh, fell back on my heels and decided that there was no loss in going to law school, which I did do. I went to Harvard. Um, didn't think it was so great, but I didn't think I'd really practice. And then I found out early on at my uh, tenure at Harvard that there was something called entertainment lawyers. And that's what I became. I uh, joined the firm of Paul Weisford from Wharton Garrison, which today continues to be one of the most important firms in the world, if not certainly in uh, this country. And I joined um, being an entertainment lawyer, being trained by, uh, at that time, the dean of entertainment lawyers, John Wharton, who's in the name of the firm, who was clearly the dean of um, entertainment lawyers and by a gentleman by the name of Bob Montgomery, who at the time was one of the deans of the motion picture uh, entertainment lawyer uh, business. So uh, under the tutelage of the two of them, I developed my expertise in film and theater, and also through others, um, music publishing, uh, book publishing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I became a full-fledged um, entertainment lawyer, developed my own practice. I particularly emphasize the need for uh, creative uh, producing, particularly in the theater business, because it wasn't, it's never been in great shape, okay? But uh, those were different problems back then as opposed to as now. Um, and I did that uh, through, um, uh, uh, you know, for many decades. And then in uh, 2000, uh, six, I completely gave up the practice of law and became a full-time producer, having produced while I was there the um, Broadway revival of a chorus line. And I really had to make a decision. Was I going to be a producer or I was going to be a lawyer? And I decided that uh, my love was the theater directly. I wanted to be directly involved. And I had been a sort of a shadow producer for so many people when I was a lawyer. Um, that's what I did. And that's how I've been doing um, now for the I guess, uh, uh, you know, the past 13, 14 years. Uh, do you, or I guess, have you had any mentors and are there any standout lessons from oh, yeah. mentors? Well, in terms of lawyers, as I mentioned, John Wharton, who is, as I said, most important. Um, I mean, when he retired, they gave him a benefit at the Schubert Theater and the place was jammed with people honoring him. Uh, and Bob Montgomery, who, as I said, is one of the most important 
um, film producers in the country. Those are my two most important mentors from the legal world. Uh, when, of course, Paul Weiss is a big firm, and there were a lot of people I worked there who were great, but those were the two most important. When it came to the theater, I was so lucky. I don't know if I'd call them mentors, but as shining examples of what it was, how to succeed. And Joe Papp at the Public Theater, yeah. whom I knew and represented for forever. Uh, Robert Stigwood, probably the most important mogul in the entertainment business in the 70s and 80s. Michael Bennett, of course, whom I was closest to, and even um, after Chorus Line actually left my firm for about six months and worked with him as a partner and continued to work with him and became, I was his executor until his death in 1986. And I am now uh, in control of all of his properties, Chorus Line, Dream Girls, et cetera. Um, and he, all these people I learned from because they were consummate professionals. They varied in their expertise from creative genius to management genius and not-for-profit genius. I mean, these people were amazing. And also other people, August Wilson, that I represented my whole career. And th those people, if not necessarily mentors, uh, became examples for me to learn from when, when you talked about or worked with uh, artists. I got to know what, what are the workings of an artist and how, how, how does his or her mind really work and to try to get into that because as a lawyer or as a producer, unless you really uh, are consonant with the way artists work and think and act, um, you're not, you're not gonna be successful. Uh, you can't just simply be a businessman who uh, dictates what has to be done from a producing uh, business point of view, you have to, you have to understand the artist. And if you don't, you're going to fail. How have you gotten better at communicating with this balance between business and art? And well, that's a very good question. Getting the two. Because as a commercial producer, you can't lose sight of what your responsibility is as a commercial producer because you have investors and you have to you're supposed to make money i mean if you're a billionaire and you say to the world i don't i love the theater i don't really care because i'm going to put up all the money myself and i don't care if i lose 100 percent. that's very rare even though i have represented billionaires almost never happens ultimately they want to not use all their money. So once you, the second you use other people's money, you have a business responsibility uh, to see if you have a commercial enterprise. And it's very simple. You have to make profits. You have to get back the money people put in and you have to make some profits. So that's, uh, that's the form and substance of what it is to be a commercial producer, whether it's film or theater or anything, right? However, in order to go from A to Z, meaning in order to start with the artist, create something and wind up in a profitable situation, you must understand the creative process and you have to take a risk. Everything in the theater or film business, whatever, this is very, very risky business, high risk. And usually, usually the high risk means taking chances with creative people who may not on paper seem like the right choice, but um, can turn out to be highly profitable for you if you treat them with respect, dignity, give them the space to work. The worst thing producers do is to think they can impose on an artist too much of their own um, point of view or their artistic imperative, because if that's what they do, then they should write the 
the show themselves. Mm. They should compose the score. If they're going to tell artists what to do, you have yeah. to let them go. I mean, Michael Bennett is the best example. Joe Papp understood when Michael was a young wunderkind um, that Michael was uh, incredibly talented. And Joe Papp, when he could least afford it because he was not-for-profit, it was before Chorus Line made millions, mm. he gave mm. Michael the free reign to do this thing called the Chorus Line. And Michael went off. There would never been workshops before, ever. And Joe gave him $100,000, which back then was a fortune, a fortune for someone in the not-for-profit, and just let Michael do his thing. And he didn't know what was going to happen. And the rest, of course, is history. But unless you had someone like Michael Bennett uh, given his free reign, because it, it took two years to figure out what they had in a chorus line, we would never have a chorus line. And we would never have the legacy of a chorus line, which is the way to produce shows through workshops and to development and everything else. So taking risk, while at the same time being aware that an ultimate objective is to try to make some money is the fine line you have to walk and a very fine line it is, a very, very uh, difficult line. But that's what makes it so challenging and so um, exciting when done well. What have you learned about your risk tolerance or how do you gut check before you yeah, take a risk? Yeah, it's a very good question, especially, um, I hope I can say post-pandemic, but who knows? Mm whether it's ever going to be post-pandemic. Um, yeah. There's a certain toler to tolerance there that you, you, you can't avoid. And clearly during the pandemic, that risk was too high to do um, anything in the theater. Um, I mean, theaters were closed, so it wasn't a difficult decision to not do anything. There was no place to put the show. Right. Uh, but as things have opened up, that risk factor has diminished. It's getting less risky. But I must say, I think we're still in a very, very difficult period. Uh, there's still strong headwinds. There's still real problems out there, particularly for commercial Broadway producers. The facts mm -hmm. indicate that. Um, people hear about million-dollar grosses with um, Hugh Jackman and uh, Hamilton and whatever. But you have to look under that stuff because that stuff is uh, especially things like Hugh Jackman are fleeting. They, they don't stay around long and they're once and sometimes once in a decade. Uh, you have to look at the underlying problems and that's quite um, sobering. And so the risk factors now, uh, although not as great, I still worry. I have a couple of shows that I'm thinking of doing in another season or two. I'm going to have to assess as things go by how um, realistic it is that I can raise for a musical $15 million or more over a play $4 million or more and hope to turn a profit. I mean, right now there are no plays. I'm saying again, no plays of the Leopoldstadt that just opened. Um, I saw the producer actually last night. It's doing over a million dollars in business. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, how long that will continue? I don't know. It's a, highly sophisticated, difficult show for the average theater goer. It's a real New York intelligentsia show. I hope it well, it does well, yeah. but that's a rare situation. And, and mostly because the reviews are so spectacular. And also there's people are hungry, hungry, especially serious older people and uh, audience members 
to see something like that that's written well, acted well. The British seem to have it on us all the time. Um, and I think of the movie business where I don't know if you've gone to the movie theory yesterday, but it's like the Grand Canyon. There's nobody there, no. especially on any in, unless it's, um, you know, Top Gun. Top Gun. Uh, but I did see uh, Clay, um, Kate Blanchett in uh, Tar, and it is mm. beyond brilliant. Uh, it's probably one of the best movies I've ever seen. And clearly uh, a stupendous performance. Uh, on a Saturday night, uh, early on, you know, just opened and there were maybe, uh, you know, two dozen people in the entire movie theater. That's really scary. And I've been to the movies. I still go occasionally if I'm not going to a screening. And I've been in movie theaters where there are literally five or six people. So the, the movie business is in a serious, serious problem. And that's a whole other, obviously, different thing with streaming. I mean, that uh, it does begin to deal with the theater at some point but but in the movie business we're looking at um i think really a sea change as i said in my um essay that i recently um wrote sent out to everyone um i think we're in a sea change particularly in the theater if we expand a little further on the sea change do you feel that it might be I mean, there's always been a disconnect, right, between live theater and the rest of the entertainment industry in the world. But do you feel as we move forward that there might be more of a movement towards the like going backwards in a good way to like the off-Broadway model or, or really drumming up excitement on a smaller scale and letting it grow as opposed to going straight in and spending so much? Well, it's hard to do anything on a small scale on Broadway. Yeah. That's the problem. Okay. okay. I mean, the Broadway economics do not lie and cannot be um, easily manipulated the way you want it to be so that the numbers come out right. Theaters cost what they cost. The unions require what they require. Um, the playwrights require, although they're always low in the totem pole, they get, usually get stuck in the side when things have to be reduced in terms of money. Um, so you, there's just so much you can do. And as I said in my essay recently, you'd have to if there really is a sea change, you have to look at the entire landscape and start changing almost everything. And I don't know whether that could ever happen. I mean, by everything, theater owners taking much less money, unions getting their membership to take less, the the actors, uh, which is the union, of course, the, the playwrights, the writers, composers, um, the scenic designers, the, the ushers. I mean, you need to have a wholesale uh, regrouping of the way the economics work on Broadway. And I don't see that easily happening or even happening at all. It's massive. And I don't, as long as you have um, these mega hits come along every 10 years or 20 years, Hamilton and um, occasionally a big star vehicle like, um, uh, you know, Music Man with Hugh, uh, as long as those come along and people see, um, millions of dollars coming into the box office while there are 42 theaters, most of which are either empty or with shows that can barely pay um, the rent. Um, the public's not going to know and public's not going to make these demands. Uh, although one of the reasons we have such a problem with the theater is the public's not showing up. Mm -hmm. The public's not there. Uh, certainly international tourism and domestic tourism is substantially down. And that's what drives the theater, the commercial theater. Without those tourists, 
you can't, and, and selling out, you can't make any money. And that has not come back. Will it come back? I hope so. I have no idea. Um, the, you know, it, it is, is uh, the, uh, are the problems of the pandemic and viruses a perennial? Um, if so, we're going to continue to have problems. If it's not, if we're going to get to something no, as no, being normal, as it was three and a half years ago, maybe there's, there's hope of that. But the scientists aren't giving us a lot of, um, you know, all I read now is the we, in, in December, we're going to have a terrible, you know, surge and, and nobody's taking the, the uh, third booster, although I did. Uh, and, and, you know, so where's the audience? Uh, and the audience is sick and tired of paying a minimum of $175 a ticket in, in the orchestra because everybody wants a good ticket. You know, if you have to pay $90 to sit up in a bad seat in the balcony, you're gonna to wanna to pay 175 to get a great seat because this everything's so expensive, right? Yeah. So how much longer are people going to pay that much money? You take four people, a, a, a family, four people to go see one of the family shows, you know, you're talking upwards of $800 or more, and then you have, an, paid for parking, you haven't gone to dinner, and you haven't uh, paid the babysitter, and therefore you're looking at close to maybe $1,500, $2,000. That's people's uh, Christmas budget, okay? So what do they do? They go to one show a year, whereas, you know, if you go way back, the New Yorkers just go to four or five um, theaters. So one of the things is we've gotten out of the habit of going to the theater, Broadway theater, people who were died in the wall, uh, especially New Yorkers who went to the theater all the time would go to four or five a year. That's over. They just can't afford it. They'd love to go to 10 a year if there was something they wanted to see. Um, and that's an issue too, but they don't do it because they cannot simply cannot afford it. And it's done this. Uh, I understand it. So they go to one show a year, especially if it's a family, uh, whether it's Harry Potter or it's Lion King or it's, you know, so, um, all these factors um, come together and, 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 and cause enormous anxiety for people like myself who are trying to figure out how are we going to get the audiences back? How are we going to get the, the, the cost down? And how, how can I look my investors in the face and say, <clears throat> I really think you're going to make money because look, here's my spreadsheet. You know, <laughs> here's what we can do if we open. And that's becoming less and less a realistic uh, projection. How is that, if it is, affecting your taste and what you choose to work on and what you choose to focus that's on? That's a great question. Uh, I like to think that um, that doesn't change. I'm probably um, Pollyanna. But keep in mind, I'm very late in my career. I've done so much. Uh, I'm in the enviable position of not having to go to a nine to five job and make a salary to pay the rent. I'm not in that position. So I can afford, um, as it were, to keep my taste, <laughs> my taste levels as high as I think um, uh, I can withstand, while at the same time, trying to figure out if my taste is going to be uh, consonant with making money. I mean, you can have all the great tastes in the world and taste your, 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 yourself out of anything commercial. I remember early on in my career, I was at an advertising, um, uh, advertising uh, uh, 
a session with the advertising company looking at posters and things like that. And I was driving everybody crazy because I said, this call is not right. This letter is not right. This is whatever. And I want this and I want that. And my director, who great, great guy and close friend said, you know, John, you've got the most incredible taste, but remember, we've got to sell tickets. And it was interesting because what he was saying was, you know, some of the stuff that you may not really like that much is a real attention getter. And we should keep in mind that what we really want to do is sell tickets with the artwork and, and the poster and not because you have, you're offended by the color green. So it was a good lesson because you have to be able to. Now that's a commercial taste situation where I didn't want them. But when it comes to the material, I, I don't want to compromise my taste. I mean, if, if look, if I read a play that comes to me and I get so many every week and I just say, my God, brilliantly written, but nobody's going to come see this. This is just so complicated. Maybe it's too long or maybe it's just too too highfalutin and and just nobody's going to get it i'm realistic about who goes to broadway and there's a level where you have to say to yourself this is just never going to work uh but then there's the play that you just dream about that is so beautifully done and so and hopefully will be beautifully directed and choreographed that even though it may not be the music man with Hugh Jackman you really think there's an audience out there for that maybe something like Leopold Steph okay beautifully written very difficult for many theater goers but they're probably with the with good reviews and are people who really want to see an intelligent play. And of course, it's written by Tom Stoppard. So he's got his own stardom. There are enough people out there. So you put all that all together. But I do. I like to feel that to go to your basic question, that uh, the commercial factors, after I think that the quality is there, are not going to say to me, oh, no, you can't, you know, this is really, this is grungy and this is offensive and this is, offends me I'm, that I'm not going to do it then because it, I don't need, I don't want to, I, you know, you have to spend a lot of time <coughs> with these shows. You have to spend the development time. You have to go to rehearsals. You have to go to auditions. You have to, and then when the show overs, you have to keep seeing it. Who wants to go see something that makes you cringe? I don't care how much money you make. I, I just don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm sure I'm in the minority. You know, I saw a show that I'm not going to mention. Okay. Uh, the other night and it kept everything from my wife and I getting up and running out screaming we hated it so much and I don't care how much I was told I was going to make money on I would never put a penny in it because I just couldn't tolerate being associated with it it was just dreadful it was dreadful I had no artistry it didn't make any sense it, it appealed to a younger audience but it was it was dreadful yeah do you have, uh, I don't know, key performance indicators or what you commonly see in scripts that you read as pitfalls or benchmarks or standout formatting? In no, a I don't. I, I, you have to take it as a whole. There's nothing particularly, uh, that, something in particular that screams out at me is that this, uh, this can't be produced. I mean, if it's, um, I suppose the one exception is if it's um, egregiously, ugly uh, in its language and sort of um, needlessly and not in service of the material 
um, uh, you know, replete with ugly language, but it's not necessary. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to continue with it because there's no purpose if it's just gratuitous. So gratuitous um, stuff like that is a turn off and I'm not interested. Um, I know one producer, for example, is very prolific and he, he has said to me, don't ask me if you want me to come in on anything that deals with uh, cruelty to, to children. Mm-hmm. You know, he, that's one of his benchmarks. And I'm, I'm not sure I particularly would want to produce something, but he says to me, he says, anything like that in a, in a play, I will not get close to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I, I respect that. I don't really have that benchmark. Uh, I, I, I'd like to think that I'm open to just about anything an, a serious artist will write. Um, and I can usually tell after the first um, 25, 30 pages whether this is being written with good intentions. Yes. Uh, that the person writing this really is serious, yeah. is has something to say, uh, knows how to write the English language. Um, you can see that in about 25 pages. Uh, and if, it, if it's clear that those intentions are not really good, I just uh, put it aside. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. 